Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. There was a fleeting reference in um, a recent episode to, like, when I was a freshman in college and I was majoring in psychology because I wanted to be a sex therapist. I've always been very interested in psychology, but I think that the sexuality tilt had mostly to do with the fact that I was, like... 18. And the topic has definitely like receded from the forefront of my mind. It's not like a major constant fascination. And what I was talking about in a recent episode is like, when I look at sexuality podcasts, not very many of them last for a long time. And it gives me the impression that a lot of these hosts who think like, hey, this is an edgy topic. It's something that we all have to kind of abstain from discussing in our everyday lives around colleagues, friends, family. The thrust of, no pun intended, the thrust of that conversation in that recent podcast episode here, I hate using that word so much, is that people seem to often sort of reach the end of that topic for themselves. And the fact that everyone is so hush-hush about it can sometimes lend to the illusion that you have more to say about it than you actually do. I, for when I was younger, I, I saw a therapist for 11 years, from like the age of 13 to 24. And if you've ever had a regular therapy situation, you probably know the experience of like sitting on a problem for five days, like something comes up in your life and it seems to, to create all this turmoil and you stew and you stew about it and you brood and you brood for five days. Finally, you go to therapy and you convey the entire situation, the essence of the situation, all of your concerns in one minute. And it feels dizzying to think like, how could I have been so mentally and emotionally consumed by this? And the reason it's like that is because is it was bigger in your head. Your mind is an echo chamber. I actually just, I'm late to the party. Just a couple weeks ago, I read Big Little Lies for the first time by Leanne Moriarty. It's set in Australia, a little beachside town in Australia, where all of these parents are concerned about their kids' well-being in kindergarten, and there's all this domestic drama, and it culminates in a murder. But the book does seem to be a meditation on how you know, the trauma that people endure, part of the power of that trauma resides in your unwillingness to share it. And all of that is a preamble to like the very self-conscious confession that I, this is another episode with a sexual component to it. And it's because of a very long, disturbing piece that was in The New Yorker this past week about the somewhat booming, little remarked upon industry of male surgical penile enhancement. Dudes making their dicks bigger by undergoing a very questionable surgery that can turn out catastrophically, and the profile follows a bunch of dudes who have fought, who have suffered the ramifications of a botched penile enhancement. But it goes beyond that. There's just some remarks, some thoughts I wanted to follow about, like, the very troubled relationship that men can have with their penises, and naturally the starting point for any conversation about men having troubled relationships with their penises, I can, you can probably guess this without my mentioning it, is um, the, uh, the implosion of the Titan submersible. <laughs>
So as everybody knows, everybody was talking about, it was an international news for like five days. There is this company, I forget the name of it. It's not, this is not really the kind of thing that warranted a deep dive of research prior to the recording. The Sparknotes version is some billionaires got into basically the Greyhound bus slash tin can slash construction site urinal of submersible vehicles and all these billion there i think there was like five dudes in it and they were just going to go down to where the titanic sank and they were going to explore the ruins of this sunken ship so bypassing just with glancing observation the fact that it was five men sitting crisscross applesauce in inside of a tiny phallus plummeting to the bottom of the ocean which is a, a, a soaring metaphor in and of itself. What ended up happening is um, the, the submersible imploded and it not only killed all of the people on board instantaneously, it like vaporized them. So their remains will never be found. Of course, this was being discussed everywhere on social media, in the news, and one of the most interesting voices on social media, I don't know if you're keeping tabs on it, but it's, it is the Twitter feed of Joyce Carol Oates. Joyce Carol Oates is 85 years old now. She is the author of about 200 books. That sounds like an exaggeration. She is literally the author of about 200 books. I think every year some people start like nervously twiddling their thumbs around her, expecting her to be the next American to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. It has not happened at this point. I kind of don't think it will happen, but she's been awarded basically every other honor that uh, the American literary establishment bestows on an author. And lately, as is such a venerated person um, on Twitter, she just sort of gives vent to whatever's on her mind. One of my favorite books about writing, this, it's a very niche thing, but it's what I think is called volume one of Joyce Carol Oates's diaries. I think it's from like 1978 to 1982. And if you read her diary entries, they, they bear a strong resemblance to what she does on Twitter. And she's just tossing out observations. And when a person tosses out observations, they usually don't use the most precise language. So she has gone viral, semi-viral, semi on a number of occasions for poorly worded ideas, ideas that sounded a little stilted, ideas that seemed like they struck her on the toilet. As many of our ideas do, and Twitter then is the place where we share them. But when news broke that the submersible had definitely imploded, Joyce Carol Oates went on Twitter and she said like, hey, this is a tragedy, this is horrible, but it also, like she then started ruminating. And she said that one of the, one of the guys on the submersible dragged his son along. So he and his son died and she says, like, this is kind of a male thing, this kind of obsession, she says, with history. And she says, you know, women become obsessed with other things. Uh, she gives some examples and she goes, but yeah, they don't really do it this way. Well, if, subsequent to that, I, I forget what website, posted like a 2000 word incensed essay or think piece in reaction. And, and the essayist is saying that Joyce Carol Oates is a misogynist because she thinks women cannot be obsessed by history. What I think Joyce Carol Oates was referring to is the fact that men are way more subject to the kind of self-destructive obsession into which they drag their loved ones. To me, it's thrilling to be writing. If I'm not writing a short story or a novel, I would then be writing an essay or a book review. Or I could be doing Twitter, I now do Twitter. And that's what takes me to the piece in The New Yorker this week. The author is Ava Kaufman. The article is titled Measure for Measure. And it's about, I had to stop reading it because I'm very squeamish, especially in detailed things about like body horror and surgical procedures. And this is an article in which 
Kaufman explores what, what, I'm going to read you the first paragraph. The first paragraph goes like this. They wanted it because they'd just gone through a bad breakup and needed an edge in the volatile dating market. Because porn had warped their sense of scale. Because they'd been in a car accident or were looking to fix a curve or were hoping for a little, quote, software upgrade. Because they were not having a midlife crisis. Because they were. Quote, and it was cheaper than a Bugatti Veyron. Because, after five kids, their wife couldn't feel them anymore. Because they'd been molested as a child and still remember the laughter of the adults in the room. Because they couldn't forget a passing comment their spouse made in 1975. Because, despite the objection of their couple's therapist, they believed it would bring them closer to their, quote, sex-obsessed husband, who then had an affair that precipitated their divorce. Because they'd stopped changing in locker rooms, stopped peeing in urinals, stopped having sex. Because... Who wouldn't want it? And she goes on from there to describe this procedure that is, you know, it's it's supposed to add like three inches of girth and length to a dude's penis. What the surgical procedure is, this dude who invented a, a device, it's like the shape of a silicone hot dog. They put it in like the base of your penis, the underside of the base of your penis, and it stretches it out long and I don't know, man. But Kaufman... I think does the responsible journalistic thing, not of like excessively profiling the people who have gone through this procedure successfully and are very pleased with the outcome, but she follows the guys for whom it did not work out. The guys who now pretty much uniformly have no sensation in their penis at all. There's also this issue when when the body rejects the implant, there's a, a condition that befalls the penis. It's something called like the shrimpening is, is sort of the colloquial way that they put it. But basically the penis like curls in on itself because if the body is trying to accommodate a quote-unquote foreign body, an implant, it tends to surround, to isolate that, that thing with like scar tissue or some other kind of fluid. And then when suddenly that thing is removed, the body tries to fill the vacuum, not by, you know, amassing new, new body material into the vacuum, but just by cinching itself up. And so, as Kaufman is pointing out, there is this horrible irony for guys who get the surgery and it goes wrong, where prior to the surgery, they were obsessed with the size of their penis, they were tormented about the size of their penis, and now that they've had the surgery and it's gone wrong, they're obsessed with the size of their penis, they're tormented about the size of their penis, and there's this now way worse caveat that it just doesn't work. Like, not only is it now, are they now going to suffer about the insecurities of, you know, am I, is this going to impress anyone? It's going to look foolish, people are going to mock me. It's also now compounded by the fact that, like, they themselves, as the as the proprietor of said item, will never enjoy it. Like, it cannot experience pleasure. And as Kaufman points out, uh, because she got to see, you know, the, the men who participated in the piece, like, gave her all of the necessary documentation, so she saw the photos of their penises prior to the surgery, and she is corroborating in the piece what she says every doctor will tell you, which is that the overwhelming majority of men who pursue this penis enhancement surgery have like what is statistically an average size penis. So I was reading that on the heels of Joyce Carol Oates's remark on Twitter, and now I'm thinking about that in relationship with what this article is exploring about men and their insecurities, their bodily insecurities. Then I have a journal uh, that was published in the United States but I don't think it was translated. It's quite a long book, some journals of about 20 years. So the one rule of my journal is I never revise it. I don't allow myself to go back to fix it or to cross anything out because that would not be honest. 
I've been trying lately to read thrillers that are written by women. First of all, I've just noticed there is like a lack of female authors in my everyday reading, but also because I've been reading so many thrillers just in general over the past couple years, I wanted to see like is is there a gendered difference in how these stories are handled? Yeah, I think kinda is the answer. And again, it's a very, it's like a 10 book sample of, of reading here. I'm kind of noticing that women who write thrillers tend to marinate in a scene and do a better job of building tension slowly. Whereas male thriller writers are just like, go, 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 accumulate deceptions, accumulate villains and backstabbings and double crosses, whatever. That basically that thrillers by women are way more ambient. And there is a creeping feeling of envelopment, whereas with men's thrillers, they tend to just sort of, it's the equivalent of someone just shoving you into a pool. Something else I've been noticing in reading these thrillers by women is um, just their depictions of women who are suffering some kind of insecurity. It seems like that insecurity becomes recursive. Conversely, when men have some kind of bodily insecurity, if they feel fat or if they feel short, or the, most notoriously if they feel short, or if they feel like their penis is too small. I'm sure there are recursive elements. There are ways in which their mind is probably some very echoey amphitheater of self-loathing, but they also will buy an extremely noisy car, or they will tell shrieking and incredibly vulgar jokes at like a work party. They pick fights, they impose themselves as like the leader of a situation that requires no leaders, or they decide, you know what? I'm fascinated by the Titanic and I have a lot of money and I know what's good and I know what's fun. So you know what? I'm gonna get my son into this tin can with me and we're gonna plummet to the bottom of the sea. And everyone's gonna be, I'm, it's such an exclusive experience and I have a right to have it. Now it sounds like I'm leading up to, su to the suggestion that all these dudes are like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't like my body. I'm gonna go to the bottom of the ocean. And it's not quite what I'm, what I'm trying to suggest. Really the idea that came to mind and it just, it kind of corresponds with something I'm, I'm writing about is that the sort of body insecurity that a billionaire might have doesn't necessarily have to do with their weight or their physical fitness or any of the standard things we know people to be generally insecure about. I think it has something, it's abstract and maybe it's stupid, but I think it kind of has something to do with both power and death. If you live for a really long time with a huge, gigantic, almost incalculable amount of money, which is basically the life of anyone with, you know, a net worth in the high nine figures or a billionaire, there's a period where there's kind of nothing on earth that you could want that you can't have in terms of material goods, in terms of services. There is this sense of a world without boundaries, and that isn't to say that people who are really rich aren't observant of the law, but I do think that, however subtly, a notion will get into your mind, if you're incredibly wealthy, that there is almost no red tape in society that you cannot overcome with a little extra money. I can think of very few services that cannot be expedited if you just throw in a few extra dollars. The news, of course, is rife with examples of judges being paid off, politicians existing in the pockets of some sort of corporate donor. And so I do think it might work its way into your brain after so many years as a billionaire or a multi-multi-millionaire that there isn't a red tape you cannot 
pay to transcend, and also there's no real inconvenience that you need to tolerate. And as you get older, and as the indignant- sorry if the air conditioner is breathing on the mic, and as the billionaire gets older, and as the indignities of age accumulate and accumulate, I think it's easy to imagine that they might develop a sort of impatience with the restrictions of the body, the restrictions of time, the idea that no, you can't go back to that moment, like you can't pay anyone to go back in time to experience certain things from your life or certain things from history. And so they become like increasingly titillated by these opportunities to go where quote unquote nobody is allowed to go or places that quote unquote can't actually be accessed. Again, that's very presumptuous and it is and it's like suggesting a certain like unsavory mindset about the people who went down there, but a lot of the commentary about that implosion on Reddit and social media was like, why is it, like, some people seem to feel that this is a good occasion for making jokes and memes when really we're talking about a bunch of people dying, and on the couple of occasions that I saw people very earnestly having that conversation about, like, is this something that warrants humor? Is it appropriate to tell jokes? The perspective I was hearing that seemed to be Basically, the thrust of it is, first of all, there is something of a classist element that peop people with everyday struggles look at this ridiculous death trap into which a bunch of billionaires crawled, presumably because the thought of being hurt by the elements just probably never crosses their mind because they're so insulated by money and the trappings of wealth and all of its attendant security. Basically, as one person was saying, like, it just reeks of carelessness and it is the kind of thing that people like to mock, but that carelessness culminated in death, which is the kind of thing that people also like to grieve and to acknowledge in a somber way. And, uh, and then this article about um, the ruination to be suffered by men who, uh, who really feel insecure about their bodies. And as tragic as the article is, there is something of a light about it when you think like, yeah, it's terrible that these men felt so insecure about their bodies that they went under the knife, they were subjected to the wiles of some kind of surgical huckster, and now their body is disfigured, they're scarred physically for life. In this effort to read more thrillers by women, first is just like a curio to see if there is sort of a gendered difference in how sort of the conventions of this genre are handled. One of the things that comes up again and again is murder and violence, because that's what thrillers and murder mysteries are all about. And when you have a story in which a woman is writing about a woman's experience of violence, one of the things you really can't get away from is that the overwhelming amount of this violence comes from men. And if you're in the hands of a good storyteller, they're going to explore that person's motives. And if they do a good job of exploring the motives of the person who committed a violent act, yeah, sometimes it's greed, sometimes it's vanity, whatever, but just as often it's um, some kind of insecurity. As versatile as these writers are, as different as they are, whether the novels take place in Australia or London or San Francisco, they are almost uniformly, to some degree, about the ways in which women just around the world need to tiptoe around the insecurities of men in order to survive. It is hard to escape the appreciation of the fact that, as tragic as it is, I'm willing to bet it's one of the relatively few instances in which men suffering some kind of physical insecurity, some feeling of inadequacy, they allowed that trauma to turn into something violent and they turned it on themselves instead of the person next to them. Is that something to be relieved about? Yes and no. Is it something to make jokes about? 
yes and no situations in which nobody wins. Anyways, thanks so much for listening. I'm sure this was really fucking delightful to hear. If you enjoyed it and you want to help out the show, I would very much appreciate if you gave a positive review, either on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever it is that you get your podcasts and you're allowed to leave reviews. I see that a few people have popped up some other ones over the past few days, and I very much appreciate it. It very much helps when you spend a few hours working on the podcast and then you go in moments of insecurity to see how many people have listened to it. When I do that, the number is always enough. Like, it's always enough that I feel like, okay, cool, this is worth my while. Someone heard it. Anyways, thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next time. quick coda to the show. Um, I'm recording this on my phone, as you can probably tell. There was one or two parts of this episode earlier than now that were also recorded on my phone. I wanted to mention that a listener got in touch after the previous episode where I talked a little bit about like looking at like what are the months in which most people celebrate birthdays and sort of tracing it nine months backward to try to figure out what's the month when most people are having sex and like getting pregnant. And a listener wrote in, as you are all welcome to do, and he pointed something out. He said, In reference to the Home Alone Can't Sleep episode, I always thought more people were having sex in the winter because there's nothing else to do. I live in Illinois where SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, is real. People just want to feel something in winter or be warm. And that's a good point. One that I, as someone who was born and raised and have lived all my life in Miami, it's not something that would have come readily to mind. Very much appreciate the input, and if you want to get in touch with me about anything, I'm not doing much these days apart from working three jobs, but you can email me at thousandmovieproject at gmail.com or you can find Thousand Movie Project on Instagram. Send me a message there. I'm almost never on either of those platforms, but I'd love to hear from you.